We're going to start today a little different. In a moment, we're going to get in the Word. But before we do that, it just felt right to me to take a little couple moments here as a church and pray about a couple things that have happened in our community and in our world that are particularly heartbreaking. Many of you know that two Sundays ago, there was a tragic car accident that rocked our community, a car full of three high school freshmen from our community and the father were in a deadly head-on collision. The father died. The three boys were in serious condition. Our church has been praying for those boys. And I wanted to share the update so that we can pray for them. These families, most of these families, as far as we can tell, don't have a community of faith. So our church has been sort of praying as much as we can for them that God would show up and, and, and do something miraculous in their lives. The three boys are Bryson, Colin, and Jack. Bryson is doing the best. He's come out of um, this. He's in... He's in um, uh, he's getting some rehab and his body is recovering. He's pretty rattled. The second boy, Colin, was in a coma for a week. And then he came out of that coma. And this was the boy who lost his father. So this boy is really hurting. His mom is really hurting. And then the third boy, Jack, is not stable at all. He's in a coma. He needs life-saving surgery that they cannot perform until his body recovers and he comes out of that coma. And so we're going to pray about that this morning, right? Amen, church? We're going to pray about that. And uh, pray that God will touch their families, okay? So in a minute, I'm going to have Pastor Jeff come and help me pray for that. And then I'm going to pray for what's happening with these fires in California. This morning, the, 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 um, the, 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 the number dead is at 90, with 1,200 still missing, which is a really, really drastic figure. And so we're going to pray about that together as a church and and do this as a family. We're going to gather together in prayer. So Pastor Jeff is going to come. I'm going to ask you to take a posture of prayer together. And let's just ask the Lord for his compassion um, in these situations. Let's pray together. Father, thank you um, that you are a God that we can come before and trust that you love us so much that you're willing to listen, but that you're also powerful enough that we pray to you with expectation and hope, knowing that, that you are capable of all things. Yeah. I think about just this beautiful picture we just saw of dedicating a baby, of parents bringing children forward to be prayed for, and it's a perfect picture of what we want to do this morning. It's just on behalf of these three boys and their families, we want to bring them before you, Lord, and we just want to pray for them and, and um, just lift them up to you. Uh, I pray for Bryson. I thank you that he's improving. I thank you that, that he is conscious. I thank you that um, he has come out of ICU and he's able to start his rehab. Um, his body is still very broken, and so we pray that his bones would, would get put back together, that, that physically he would be put back together, but also mentally and emotionally, the things that he's trying to process um, just... I pray for him, Lord. I pray that, that he would continue to have courage to, to do his physical therapy, strength to continue, but as well as just people around him that love him yeah. and can encourage him. God, I pray for um, Colin. I'm grateful, again, that, that he woke up. A week ago, we were mm -hmm. praying desperate prayers of um, just for a miracle, and then he woke up, and we're grateful yeah. for that, Lord. But we also know he's still got a long way to go um, physically, mentally, spiritually. Um, so we pray for him. We pray for continued miracles. We pray for a body that continues to heal, a mind and a spirit that continue to be encouraged throughout the midst of this. Lord, as somebody, he's got a processing, losing his dad and 
in the midst of this. God, we also pray for Jack, who's still in a coma. We pray for miracles for him. We've seen you do miracles. We've heard of stories of people being healed before, and, and we come before mm-hmm. you expectantly with Jack, and we ask for that. We ask for a brain mm-hmm. to stop swelling. We ask for his body to stabilize in a way that would allow him to have the surgeries that he needs. We pray for wisdom for his doctors, wisdom for his parents. Um, and we just ask for miracles, Lord. Um, I pray for their families, the just two weeks of just exhaustion that this must be and all the other things that they're trying to juggle. We just pray for them. We pray for everybody involved, Lord, that they would know that they're not alone, that they would know that you are with them, that they would feel peace and comfort that doesn't make any sense given the circumstances, Lord, that they would know that it's from you, God, that they would know that you love them, that they would know that you're a God that weeps and mourns right alongside of them in the midst of this. We pray for the other driver involved, Lord, the things that he's got to be processing um, in this. And we just pray that that you would be with him in his spirit, Lord, giving him comfort. Um, We just pray. We pray for Colin's mom as she's mourning the loss of her husband while also trying to take care of her son. Um, You are a God, the only God that is big enough to handle all of this. And we come before you hopeful, expectant, God, knowing that you know better then we do what they need. And so we just ask for those things, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And we pray all the same things, Lord, for the many families whose lives have been devastated in California and elsewhere. It's just overwhelming, God. The numbers, they just sound big, and yet we have no way to even take in what that all means, the number of families who've been impacted, the ripple. And so our hearts mourn, Lord, and we cry out to you to be there, to show up in in a way that only you can do in the midst of hurt and heartache and suffering. And God, you are um, a God who enters into our suffering. And we we thank you, Lord. May you bring peace where there's discord. The peace of Jesus Christ, the peace that transcends understanding, God, would you bring that? Would you bring comfort where there's heartache, Lord? Um, We pray for the firemen and other heroes who have left other places in our country to go and and battle and fight and rescue, that you would bless them, Lord. And we pray for all of the families who are reeling, Lord God, that in this time they might know your love and your power and your grace in their lives in a way that only you can do, God. We pray it and we ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for your faith, River West. Thank you for your prayers. This is what we do sometimes because we're a family together. We're a family of faith, and sometimes we gather and we do family business. So if you're new or visiting, welcome, welcome to the family. And I want to invite you now to get in, get out your Bible and open with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. If you're new or visiting, we've been in a series in the book of Luke, and so we're going to chapter 2. While you're turning there, ushers are coming. If you don't have a Bible or you don't own a Bible, would you raise your hand? And we want you to have the written word there. We'll be looking at several very profound passages. You'll want a Bible in your hand. And I want to take you back and and give you a little bit of a, a recap of that prayer card that you filled out. Remember that prayer card that we had you fill out? We had 670 prayer cards that we took to the beach, 14 of us. Do the math. It was a lot per person. And here's what I did. I broke those up evenly among 14, and I, I sent the leaders out, the pastors and the elders, and every one of those prayer cards was prayed over. We were on our knees, grieving with you, rejoicing with you. 
And what we did is after a time alone, we came back into smaller groups of three or four, and we did another round of praying over those cards together in community. It was beautiful. And then after that, we came into a larger context with the whole team, and we just made observations about what's happening in the life of our church. And here's what we discovered, and this is a word of encouragement. Do you know what the number one overall prayer request was from you? The number one thing that our church is asking for prayer for is that God would bless your witness to your unbelieving friends, family, coworkers. It was beautiful. People praying for their neighbor, people praying for their children, people praying for someone at work, praying, God, please. And it was not just, hey, please pray for my unbelieving friend. The prayer was, pray for me that the light of Christ would shine out of my life, that my joy in Jesus would be contagious, that I would be revived in my Christian faith, that my witness would be effective. How wonderful is that? We prayed for that. It was beautiful. And it's the perfect segue into the text we're going to look at this morning. Because we're learning in our study in the Gospel of Luke that Luke is only interested in the condition of your heart. Luke always targets the heart. That's what we've been learning. And it's because Luke knows something. And actually, God knows something that he recorded through Luke, and it's this. The way that the gospel will spread in our world is through individual human hearts that have been ignited in faith because of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's how the gospel spreads. Your heart ignited in faith and joy and your personal witness as you share with others what Jesus has done for you. You will see great things happening in the people around you as your heart and your witness goes forth. That's what the account is about that we'll look at this morning in chapter 2. It is the most famous Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke. We're looking at the birth of Christ. Finally, Jesus is going to be born finally today in our series. We've been waiting for this moment, and finally we come to the birth of Christ, and we come to the shepherds and the angels. It's wonderful. Will you look at it with me? Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Let me just pause, put your finger there, and let me tell you something. Luke brings up this little town called Bethlehem. This is going to become an important detail in a moment because every devout Jew knew that there was an ancient prophecy from the book of Micah that said that God's Messiah would be born in a town called Bethlehem. So the reader of Luke is reading and realizing, yeah, but Joseph and Mary are from Nazareth, so how is God going to get Joseph and Mary, the mother of Christ, to Bethlehem. Well, we're going to find out this morning. We pick up in verse 5. Joseph took his wife to Bethlehem to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, meaning they were legally pledged to be married. They were not married yet. She was with child, verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. It's beautiful. It's iconic. It's famous, the Christmas story. And I will confess, it feels a little weird to be studying this passage on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, okay? It feels weird because we have a very strict rule in the McMurray home, no Christmas celebrations until December 1, all right? No Christmas music, none of it, okay? Yesterday, I was driving with my daughter, Bridget, and she looked over and she said, Dad, I have to confess. I listened to a Christmas song yesterday. And I was like, oh, who was it, Bridget? She was like, it was Michael Bublé. And I was like, oh, gosh, it's worse than Mariah Carey. But anyway, so it feels a little weird. But here's the thing. I'm actually really excited we're going to study this today, and here's why. Because sometimes the meaning of these stories gets buried in all of the novelty of our Christmas celebrations, right? And we're so familiar with these stories, we blow through them and we miss sometimes the, the very thing that Luke wants us to see. There's a theme in here that Luke is saying, you've got to see this theme. And here's what he does. Luke intentionally places the birth of Christ against the backdrop of imperial authority. Did you see that? In verse 1, it's right there. Look at your Bible. There's all this language about decrees and a census, a registry. And Luke wants us to know the names of these imperial Roman leaders. There's Quirinius and there's Caesar Augustus. And Luke is being very intentional. He's saying, you've got to see the birth of Christ against this backdrop where Roman powerful rulers are decreeing and moving and they, they think they're moving forward the course of human history and then into human history comes this child. What's Luke doing? He's creating a contrast. Luke's saying, I want you to see that there's this contrast and it's a contrast between the way that God does things and the way that we typically do things. That's the contrast. The birth of this little baby is the beginning of a confrontation between two kingdoms. One kingdom is the kingdom of God and all of the ways of that kingdom. And the other kingdom is the kingdom of men and all of those ways that we go about kingdom. Caesar Augustus does not know this, but there's actually two kings now in his kingdom. Another king has been born. We know this because the angel came to Mary and said, your child will be great and he will inherit the throne of David and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so Luke says, Caesar does not even know this, but another king has been born and there's another kingdom. And these two kingdoms could not be more different. So what we need to do today, Riverwest, we have to peel back all the nostalgia, all of your familiarity. We've got to remove the twinkle lights, the Christmas cards, and the nativity scenes so that we can get in and see there are these two images that are really important to Luke and we blow right past them. But they're the key to getting the meaning. Two objects in the story that are the key to understanding the contrast. You say, what are they? Well, they're this, the census and the manger. These are not just incidental details. We read past so fast. These for Luke, these are critical symbols of all of the meaning. The census represents influence through coercion and control. 
You probably saw it. Luke repeated it four times. He's like, this decree goes out. Augustus says, I want the whole world to be registered. This was the first registration, verse 2. Verse 3, everyone went to be registered, even Joseph and Mary. They went to Bethlehem to be registered. We get it. Luke, repetition. Luke says, this is critical. It's a symbol of the way the world goes about influence through control and coercion. But there's another symbol in this story. It's the manger. And the manger represents influence through transformed hearts and lives. That symbol is going to become really important in the, in, the, in the next section when we look at the shepherds and the angels. But do you see how different those are? They could not be more different. Luke says, slow down and see this. I need you to see that the birth of Christ is telling us something about the way that God views power. And the way that God views power is so different from the way our world views power. Roman kings ruled from on high. The king of God is born into the most humble of circumstances. He's laid in a manger. Roman kings exert control through power and coercion. The king of God, King Jesus, will create change by transforming people's hearts and lives. The kingdom of our world spreads as people have victory and conquest and power. The kingdom of God spreads as individual hearts are transformed by Jesus and they share their testimony. So different. We got to pay attention because here's the thing. God will never honor the worldly way of influence. Amen? God will never honor that. You and I have got to make sure that we understand the difference. And so Luke says, pay attention. Get in close. Get in deep. Make sure you're, you're applying this in your own life. So I want to look at each of these images this morning, and then at the end I'm going to tell you a little bit something interesting about Jesus. But we begin with the census. We look at it in verse 1. It tells us that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the whole world should be registered. What was a registry or a census? For a Caesar, it was always about two things, okay, money and power. Money and power. You did a census so that you could collect taxes. You can't collect taxes from people if you don't know who they are or where they are. Caesar Augustus wanted to fill his bank account, and so he issued a census. The whole world goes to get registered. But also it was about control. If you can move people around and make them put their names on a list, you know who they are, you know how to control them. And and for Luke, the irony could not be more thick. Here's Caesar Augustus in Rome thinking he's calling the shots, sending out a decree, and behind the scenes, God is at work accomplishing his purposes, getting the pregnant mother of his Lord from Nazareth to Bethlehem in fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. Isn't that amazing? We look around the world, we see people who think they're in control and they're not in control. God is in control. Amen? God is in control. Behind the scenes, his purposes will never be defeated. It's so powerful, so beautiful. The census represents 
a worldly approach to power, and Caesar Augustus was the poster child of a worldly approach to power. He was a narcissist, and he was a brute. His father was Julius Caesar, his adopted father, and when Julius Caesar died, Augustus took over, and immediately he consolidated power He assassinated all of his competitors to the throne, and he started expanding his empire. Under Augustus and under his brutal warring, the Roman Empire doubled in size. It stretched all the way up to Great Britain, over to India, the northern horn of Africa. It was massive, and he claimed along the way that he had brought peace. But it was a peace that he won by sticking his foot on the necks of of his kingdoms, of his subjects. It was an odd piece. There's a story told that in one of the battles in Germany, he lost three legions of of warriors. And when when Caesar Augustus heard this, the story is that he went into his chamber and he started pounding his head against a concrete wall until it bled. And he started yelling, I want my three legions back, pounding his head against a wall. That's intense. All right. That is crazy. He was a brute. And he was a narcissist. He demanded that his subjects call him Lord to say Caesar is Lord. They found an inscription in the province of Asia that describes it perfectly. I'm going to put this up on the screen, and I want you to notice the kind of language that Caesar Augustus used to describe himself. You're going to recognize some of these terms in the Christmas story. It says, Whereas the providence which has ordered the whole of our life, showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving to it Augustus, by filling him with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men, and by sending him, as it were, a, as a savior for, those, for us and those who come after us, to make war to cease, to create order everywhere. And whereas the birthday of the god Augustus, hello, stand back, lightning's going to strike, was the beginning of the world for the glad tidings. That's the word gospel. He used the word good news to describe his coming that have come to men through him. Paulus Fabius Maximus, the proconsul of the province, has devised a way of honoring Augustus hitherto unknown to the Greeks, which is that the reckoning of time for the course of human life should begin with his birth. Do you know what that means? He wanted human history to start a new way of recording time at his birth. Does that sound familiar and crazy? Crazy? This guy was a narcissist. Here's the point, River West. People who follow Jesus, we're supposed to reject this way because we love Christ. We love his way and we reject the way of the world, the way the world approaches power and influence. You say, well, this doesn't apply to me because I don't have any power and influence. That's not true. Everybody has influence somewhere. Every one of you has a relationship or or a setting in which you have power. You're thinking about it right now, and I want you to, because what I want you to do is begin to say, in that context, how am I tempted by our world to exert influence or power in a worldly kind of way? I love Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to reject that way. 
Think about it. So much of the hurt in our culture, in our world, all of the abuse that's happened, all of the hurt that people have experienced, so much of that boils down to an abuse of power, doesn't it? And it bleeds into the church, sadly, and, and it grieves God. The number of stories in the last year of, of sexual misconduct and abuse that have come out in churches, it grieves God's heart, and it boils down to misusing power right? And it's heartbreaking. And it bleeds into the world of politics, right? As followers of Jesus, so many of us, we're so grieved at the way we see politicians in our world using power because it's, it's, that, it's that Caesar Augustus way, coercion and control, and it grieves our hearts. And do you know what? It should. And do you know why? Because we love Jesus. Amen? It grieves us. There was a man in our church who used to come up to me and he would say, do you know what? Every election season, do you know what I do on my ballot? I write in for president your name. He said that to me. <laughs> and I thought he was kidding. And then he was, no, I'm serious. And I was like, dude, if you're writing in my name, we have got serious problems here. And he was like, exactly, exactly. Exactly. And you know why we think that kind of stuff? Because we love Jesus. And we want to follow Jesus. And to follow Jesus is to reject the way that the world uses power. Authoritarian coercion and harm is not the way of Jesus. Amen? Amen. And then what Luke does is Luke says, but there's another way. Let me give you another image. It's the image of a manger. Did you see it there in verse 7? See, we read so fast. The manger is a contrast. The manger is not a rejection of influence. It's another way to, to view influence. It's influence not through external control, but through internal transformation. You say, how are you getting that from a manger? Well, think about this. A manger is a feeding trough. Did you know that? That's what a manger is. It's a feeding trough. It's, a, it's the place where cattle would come, flocks would come to feed and get nourishment. We've glorified the image and we've sanitized it through Christmas carols and children sing away in a manger. Can you imagine if we brought the kids up and they started singing away in a feeding trough, no crib. That's, but that's what it was. It was a feeding trough. Mary, the mother of Christ, finds herself in Bethlehem because of an edict that came down from Rome. There's no room for her in the guest room, so the host gives them the room where the cattle would come in for the night. She has her baby boy, and she takes that precious child. And where does she lay him? She lays him in a feeding trough. It was probably used a couple hours before for cattle to come and eat on the grain and the straw. It's so powerful. It's so profound. The image goes back to a prophecy in the book of Isaiah that I'll read for you. It's on the screen, Isaiah chapter 1 verses 2 and 3, where Isaiah says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, 
For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah is grieving. He's saying, my people have forgotten where to go for spiritual nourishment. They have forgotten me. They've walked away, and Isaiah grieves. And then Luke takes that image, and he says, the feeding trough is here again. God's going to feed his people spiritually again. Like, like sheep that are looking for a place to feed, God says, I'll show you where to go. And now you can understand why God, in his sovereign wisdom, chose shepherds to be the first people that he would reveal the birth of his son, Jesus. Isn't that amazing? We look at it, verse 8. Here's what happened. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds. These were the guys who their, their whole livelihood, their whole life centered around caring for a flock, leading their flock to nourishment. A lot of sermons I've heard say the point of the shepherds is that they were the despised in society. God's going first to the despised. But the problem with that is that shepherds were not despised in ancient Israel. They were actually, David was a shepherd. And God compares himself to the great shepherd in Psalm 23. So the purpose was not to say that these guys were despised. They were common folk and God goes there first. But the purpose is to say these were the guys who devoted their lives to leading the flock to nourishment. And what would be the sign that God would give them that he's come again to feed his people spiritually? Look at it, verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The sign was the manger. How do you alert a group of shepherds that something important has happened? God says, go to the manger. See, there were probably more, ba there were other babies in Bethlehem that were wrapped in swaddling cloths, but only one baby was lying in a manger, I assure you, <laughs> right? So what did they do? Here it is. And suddenly, verse 13, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying where? In a manger. And when they saw it, when they saw what? When they saw the manger, they made known the saying that, in, that had been told them concerning this child. Okay, so we miss this. We miss it because there's so many other amazing things happening in the story. There's a heavenly host of angels and they're singing and they're declaring the gospel. 
And they're saying Caesar Augustus is not good news, but Jesus Christ, God's son is good news. And they're declaring peace on earth. And they're saying Caesar Augustus has not brought peace. He's brought pacification, but that's not peace. But there is a king who will bring peace. And there is a king who's come who's a savior. And he won't save by conquering. He'll save by transforming you from the inside out. And then the angel says to a group of shepherds, and here is the sign. What is the sign? Where would you go to find him? The angel says, go to the manger. Go to the feeding trough of God. The symbolism is so rich. I imagine them walking into the room that night in Bethlehem, and they walk into the room. There's Mary, there's Joseph, and there it is, the feeding trough. And they know God is going to feed his people again spiritually. Unbelievable. You know what the strangest thing that Jesus ever said was? He said to a group of Jews who were debating with him, he said, if you don't feed on me spiritually, you will never have eternal life. It was really radical. In fact, it was so bonkers that when he said it, a lot of people walked away. They didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Let me show it to you. Go to John chapter 6. Keep your finger in Luke 2, but look at this real, real briefly with me. This is the key to understanding the manger. This is the key to a transformed heart. This is the key to the spread of God's kingdom. John 6, Jesus has fed the 5,000 miraculously, and then he slips away, and the people who ate the bread wanted more signs, but really what they wanted was they wanted more bread. So a bunch of people followed Jesus, not because they wanted true spirituality, but because they wanted bread. And they come to Christ and they say, show us another sign. Our fathers ate manna from heaven that Moses poured out, you know, and they're like, show us another sign. And Jesus says the most scandalous thing. John 6, I'm going to read to you from verse 30. Where am I going to read to you from? There, there it is, verse 48. Will you look at it with me? John 6, verse 48. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. It's a metaphor. He's not being literal, obviously. Jesus is saying, he's pointing forward to his death and his resurrection and he's pointing forward to the practice of the church week in and week out where we go to the table and we eat the bread, the bread that represents his body that was given. And we drink the cup. And Jesus says, do you realize God is going to feed his people again? And how is he going to feed us? How is he going to nourish us? I am the bread of God that comes down from heaven to die for human sin, to rise again. It's beautiful. It's powerful. And it brings meaning to this moment because in this moment we come forward and we feed again on the glory of the gospel. We feed spiritually on the ministry of Christ and it transforms us and it changes us.
So now let me finish the story in Luke and show you how the story ends. We left off at verse 17. The shepherds are there. They're in the room. They've come to God's feeding trough. And here's what happens. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. It's an interesting detail, but Luke tells us that Mary heard something in that moment that was so new and so profound that it caused her to stop and ponder and treasure and try to fit the pieces together. And when you're reading that, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, I thought that an angel had already visited Mary and told her all about her child, but the angel didn't tell her everything. The angel left out a lot of things that were revealed to these shepherds, like he will be a savior. The angel peels back the curtains of heaven and shows the heavens rejoicing, giving glory to God and saying, this child will bring peace on earth. And these shepherds showed up and they announced all that. And Mary learned things about her own son that were so profound that she treasured them in her own heart. So powerful. You know what that tells us? The shepherds were the first witnesses to the gospel. They were the first proclaimers. They walk into the room. They see Christ in the feeding trough. And whatever they see in that moment, it transforms them from the inside out. And they immediately begin worshiping God and declaring the truth about Christ so that even his mother is blessed by it. What did they see? What did they see in that moment when they looked on the face of Christ? I think they saw what Paul described in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, when he described the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God turning on the lights of our world, allowing us to see his glory. And where do you look to see the glory of God? Paul says, you look in the face of Jesus. That's what they saw in that moment. They looked at the child. They saw his face. They saw God's glory. They fed on him and they were filled and transformed and they became worshipers and proclaimers of gospel truth. Now, let me tell you why that matters for you, River West. How is God going to grow his kingdom? How is the kingdom of God going to spread? It will not spread through slick advertising. It's not going to spread through slick programs. It's not going to spread through slick Celebrity pastors, here's how it's going to spread. It's going to spread through you. It's going to spread through your heart. You come to the table, you come to God's manger, and you eat, and you get filled. And God reminds you of the joy that you have in Christ. Maybe your joy has waned, and you realize, I want people in my life to see my joy in Christ. Do you know what you do? come to the table and eat. You say, I want people to see how much Jesus has changed me, but sometimes I forget and sometimes that passion doesn't come through and the people in my life don't see it. What should I do? Come to the table and eat again. Drink in 
the beauty of the gospel and pray, God, change me, fill me with light, fill me with joy. I want to be a witness for Christ in my world. This is why we come to the table every Sunday. And so this morning, I'm inviting you to the manger of God. Amen. Amen. And when you come, you'll get the bread. The bread represents his body. You'll get the cup. The cup represents his blood, the new covenant in his blood. And then you'll go and you'll sit there in your seat and you'll worship and you'll pray and you'll say, God, would you fill me anew so that I can be a witness for your good news in my world. And then when you're ready, eat and drink and we'll worship together. I'm going to pray about that right now. Will you bow your heads with me as the worship team comes? It's really deep, Lord. It's profound. There's a lot going on in there. The contrast could not be more strong. The way of our world, the way our world uses power, and the way that you've called us to be your church. We want to be like Jesus. We pray for it, Lord. This morning, as we come to your table, Jesus, would you remind us of your way, and would you... Fill us and change us and transform us. Revive us, God. Revive our joy. We pray that the light of Christ would shine through us this day as we leave this place. And we ask it together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.